everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today we have with us a special guest, Dr. Peter Orr. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Orr. Thank you very much, Kirk. Thank you for having me. Dr. Peter Orr is a New Testament lecturer at Moore Theological College in Sydney, Australia. Um, Although he's originally from Northern Ireland and has ministered in additional places like Romania and London. Orr and his wife, Emma, have four sons and are members of All Saints Petersham. And he is an author of and contributor to several books, including the book that we'll be talking about today, which is titled The Beginning of the Gospel, A Theology of Mark. And this book just came out maybe a couple weeks ago, uh, January 10th here, 2023. It's part of the New Testament Theology series edited by Thomas Schreiner and Brian Rossner. Um, and our church actually is currently preaching through Mark. We just started. We're two, two sermons in. I'll be preaching the, uh, what some people consider the prologue coming up here on Sunday. Um, and I read Dr. Orr's book as I was looking for resources of just things to read as I was preparing for the sermon series. And, uh, it just came out, as I said. And so I figured I'd ask him if he was interested in having a conversation on Mark. And so we hope that this episode encourages you to read and study Mark on your own for yourself. Um, but also then can help serve as a helpful aid in helping you understand the book as you read it. And so what we're going to be doing today is really just going through a lot of the different themes and the theology of Mark. Um, And so I figured I would start off by asking you, Mark, of course, is uh, a gospel account, the story of Jesus. Let's start off, if you don't mind, by talking about Mark's um, treatment of the identity of Jesus and specifically in your book, you talk, uh, you do a good deal of digging into the titles that Mark uses for Jesus. Can you talk to us about how Mark presents Jesus's identity? Yeah. So uh, it's interesting, you know, all the, all the gospels to just almost say a truism are about Jesus. But I think uh, it's very interesting to look at the, look at how the gospel begin just to get get their particular angle on um you know what, what aspect of jesus they're emphasizing and uh, you know luke starts with kind of sort of underlining that he's writing so that we might have confidence or that the office might have confidence uh mark starts by uh, immediately uh you know talking about the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god so right up front uh, you know, he's not giving us uh, a, a birth narrative. He's just uh, pointing us to to Jesus, and he identifies him as the the Christ and the Son of God. And so, from the very beginning, I think uh, we can sort of say t- titles are important. They're not the only thing. And sometimes uh, people have analyzed the Gospels or analyzed Jesus just only through those titles. And yet, you know, you can say so much more. Um, but the titles are are very important. And those kind of titles right at the beginning, Christ and the Son of God, I think by putting them up front, perhaps uh, Mark is sort of saying they're uh, they're kind of key to his presentation of Jesus, even though there are, you know, there are other titles throughout. Uh, I mean, Son of Man is very important in, in Mark's gospel. That's the title that Jesus takes uh, on himself. And it, it seems that most of these titles would have had a resonance with people um you know, before they read the gospel, even non-Christian people, 
Jewish people would have had a, an understanding of the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, Gentile people would have had an understanding of the Son of God. But what uh, Mark does is show how Jesus fulfills and surpasses those expectations. So very simply, you know, the Christ, the King, promised in in um, the Old Testament, the promise to David in 2, 2 Samuel 7, all, all those um those ideas, you know, they're, they're there, they're fulfilled in Jesus. But then Mark shows us that Jesus is, um, in a sense, an un, unexpected Christ and that he's a Christ who suffers. That That's the mm-hmm. thing that Mark shows us that's unusual. So, you know, the, the titles um, highlight his identity in the way that they fulfill Old Testament, particularly Old Testament expectations. But then uh, there is the kind of the idea of the newness of, of or, or the unexpectedness of Jesus uh, that, that comes. Uh, yeah. So that, that would be the sort of basic basic idea of the, of the titles. Yeah. Can you help us think through the meaning of some of those key titles? Like when we read, for example, that Jesus is, Mark says that he's a son of God. Um, it shows up, you know, the very first verse, as you said, or some of the other yeah. titles that are important, like yeah. son of man, you mentioned. Yeah. Um, yeah, the son of the most high. I'm not sure. I think Luke might use that language. I know the, the unclean spirits, they call him, uh, they identify him as well. Um, yep. Help us think through some of those identifications yeah, yeah. and what they would conjure up. Yeah, so son of God is, is, is an interesting one because I think as Christians, we read that and we automatically think kind of Trinity. We think uh, God the son. And I think Mark does present Jesus as divine, absolutely. But I think Son of God in the first instance is, uh, again, rooted in the, in the Old Testament. I think, you know, as, as Christian believers, we, we, we are drawn to the New Testament, which is right and good. But to really understand the New Testament, we need to read the Old Testament. So, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of son language is used in the Old Testament. You know, God, God calls Israel his son. Uh, he called David his son. So, it's um, you know it's 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 an idea that uh, points to uh, you know Jesus' kingship. But again, I think what Mark does is shows that it, it, it is more than that, and that's where the kind of divine uh, identity comes in. So at his baptism, you know, God addresses him as his son, and I think that's in a in a in, in a way in a more elevated way than um, uh, you know any of those Old Testament uses. So again, what we're seeing is. Um, you know, an Old Testament idea, you know, Jesus is king, uh, but then it's it's uh, elevated. So he's he's the divine king. He is, um, you know, he is God's unique uh, son. Um, son of man, as, you know, as, as you said, is very important. And that's the one that Jesus will often take upon himself. You know, it's a less common title in the Old Testament. Uh, but again, it's a very elevated uh, title, Son of Man. Again, we, we can sort of read that. If we just don't know the Old Testament, we might think, oh, you know, Jesus is God and man. He's Son of God. That's, you know, his divine identity, Son of Man. He's human. And that that's doctrinally true, obviously, but that's not what the title means. The title is actually Son of Man is is an equally high title pointing to his, uh, his divinity because in, you know, in Daniel 7, the Son of Man kind of shares the throne with with God. So, for Jesus to take that title upon Himself is uh, again a very uh, elevated, um, a very elevated title. So these titles, you know, Lord is the other one, and and again, you know, Lord can 
uh, the, the Greek for Lord, kurios, you know, can just be sir. But again, what Mark is doing is he kind of fills that title uh, with Jesus' divine identity. So again, with, with the titles, they're not all saying the same thing. They're all uh, they're kind of different aspects of Jesus' identity rooted in the Old Testament. And then what Mark does is kind of uh, amplifies them and fills them with, um, yeah, with, with Jesus' deity. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the titles are, I think of Son of God, for instance, where he obviously, Mark opens the book identifying yep. Jesus as a Son of God. So he doesn't, even as some of the characters in the opening you know, sections of the book, they're still figuring out who this yeah. individual is. We've already been clued in. Um, yeah. And Son of God is super important in the sense that the book opens that way. You have a significant moment, both in terms of Jesus' baptism. The Father identifies Jesus as the Son yeah. of God at the transfiguration, then at like a midpoint, a high point, yeah. um, literally on the mountain, but high point in terms of the narrative as well, identifying yeah. Jesus as the Son of God. And then at the end of the book, also the other time that the this language of torn open is used. So the heavens are torn open at Jesus' yeah. baptism and God the Father identifies him as the Son of God. At the end, the Roman centurion, the temple veil is torn, and the centurion of all people identifies Jesus as the Son. And so son is the Son of God language really structures the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Christ is yeah. also really important, obviously. Um, and so Peter's when you hear confession. Yeah. Yeah, Peter's, yeah, Peter's confession, confession in the midpoint. middle. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so um, it's important to understand the titles. But as you said, Jesus' identity as Mark is presenting it, it's far more than just titles. I think of the structure of the book of Mark is so important to understanding Mark. Um, it is, it carries, I mean, every book of the Bible that we need to pay attention to the structure of the book, but in Mark's case, yep. it, it definitely carries, like yep. you would, you would very much misunderstand the book if you don't understand the structure because the structure is really a progression of yep. coming to grips with the identity of Jesus. Yeah. Yep. Um, would you want to, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, as you, you mentioned, the kind of the mid, the high point of the transfiguration. I mean, the other sort of the, the kind of the midpoint of the gospel is Peter's confession, um, where uh, Peter and the other disciples have sort of uh, been stumbling around, half understanding, half misunderstanding who Jesus is, and then um, you know, chapter eight, uh, Jesus asks, you know, who do you say I am? So that that I, I think what you said is really helpful. You know, that that kind of midpoint that the issue on the table is Jesus identity mm -hmm. who do you say I am and then uh, Peter replies uh, you are the, the Christ uh, so he you know, he grasps uh, Jesus identity not what happens next is really interesting we'll get to that but um, yeah that that shows that you know Jesus identity is uh, is key to the to the gospel at the beginning, the middle, and as you say, at the end. And again, really interesting that it's a Roman centurion who recognizes mm -hmm. uh, Jesus' uh, sonship. Um, and, you know, I think this is a minor point, but it's interesting that son of God would have been a very Roman kind of uh, Greek term that, that, that Gentiles would have understood the claim that, you know, someone is a son of God is, you know, they, this is a very elevated figure. And, and Mark is saying yes, but kind of more than you, um, you know, more than you imagine. Yeah, yeah. And the Romans would have used like not only "son of God" language, but also the the word "gospel" that had a lot of political yeah. connotations at times. Yeah. So, um, like the and lordship or, language. Yeah. yeah. Like the idea yeah. of the Lord who's bringing, who is the Son of God, 
um, who is bringing the good news. It was like that was something that was said of the emperors. Yeah. Um, and so obviously uh, in an even el- more elevated sense, as you said. Um, so really understanding the structure, like roughly the first eight chapters. So up until uh, the healing of, of the blind man in two stages, I would yep. see as kind of the first section of the book. And it's yep. largely you see you see the, the, the central theme there is who is Jesus answering? Who yep. is he? You have. Yep. The disciples, you know, asking on the boat when Jesus calms a storm, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Um, you have, you have accounts of people rejecting Jesus, whether it's the religious leaders who accuse him of, of doing his miracles by the power of Satan, mm-hmm. or whether it's his family thinking he's crazy. There's all this sort of, presentation of who Jesus is and whether he's being rejected. And then he gives parables to explain why he's being rejected. The parable of the sower, of course, explains then why not everyone is receiving the gospel. There are different soils, in other words. By the time the disciples have come to grips with who Jesus is, in a sense, where Peter can confess that he's the Christ in chapter 8, they haven't fully understood who Jesus is. They only understand him partially. It's like the man, the man who is healed in two stages seems to be yep. symbolic of their partial understanding. They, That's right. they see in part, they understand who Jesus is. But by the time we get to then the middle of the book, what some people call the way section, when Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, on his on the way to the cross, teaching them their own way of discipleship in his footsteps, bearing their own cross, that's the part they haven't come to grips with. They may understand he's the Christ, but they don't yet understand what sort of Christ he is. He's not the Christ they expected, but he's a Christ yeah. who has come to suffer and die and calls them to follow in his footsteps. Um, and so the whole structure, and then by the end of the book, you, of course, see Jesus completing that mission. Um, and so maybe uh, maybe a, a theme that I think fits into this is then what some people call the messianic secret. Do you mind yeah. talking to us about the messianic secret and how this plays into Mark's overall message? Yeah, the messianic secret um, is, uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting idea. It was, uh, the kind of term was um, first used in the early 20th century by a German scholar uh, called um, William Breda. And it's an observation that, uh, you know, particularly we notice in, John's, in Mark's gospel um, that, Demons recognize his identity. So uh, chapter one, verse 34, um, you know, he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So you have the idea of, um, you know, Jesus uh, silencing uh, the, the demons. Um, you know, there are other places where kind of you know, demons will, will sort of, you know, claim to know uh, who Jesus is. Uh, he silences them. Um, you know, there are different places where, he, you know, he will tell the disciples um, not to, um, you know, n- not to say what happened, you know, coming down from the, the Mount of uh, Transfiguration. Um, you know, they've, they've seen this kind of revelation of, of um, Jesus' glory, and he told uh, them to tell no one what they had seen. And so, you know, uh, William Breda kind of came up with this idea that this was the the kind of later church imposing, uh, trying to explain why people didn't understand who Jesus was, and and um, you know he, his 
his explanation no one um no one really uh, follows today but you know and this is often the way with with some scholars that we might disagree with they'll they'll actually sometimes make really interesting observations and then they'll they'll come up with an explanation that kind of denies the authority of the scriptures or whatever but but the observation can be interesting and it is interesting that in mark's gospel perhaps more than the other gospels why does jesus kind of silence um uh, uh people and i think there's two answers you know he he silences demons because he's not interested in the kind of um proclamation of his identity by demons and you know he will tell the disciples to remain quiet because he he knows that they don't fully understand who who he is so again mm -hmm. i i'm i didn't read the end of that little bit um from the transfiguration he tells them um you know not to uh to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead he, mm -hmm. he understands that it's not going to be until the resurrection that they have a full understanding and so if they blunder around telling people that you know this is the christ as we've touched on that their understanding of the christ is distorted and uh yeah it's going to lead to a um yeah a, a wrong understanding so yeah. i think that's that's what's what's going on um in, in mark's gospel with the, the messianic secret it really does seem to fit into the message of the book if the message of the book is about how we've titled our sermon series, the unexpected King to mm. capture the idea that it's identifying yeah. Jesus as the King. But, and like I said, the first, you know, eight so chapters, they can come to grips with, Oh, he's the King. He's the Christ, yep. that anointed language for, for King. Um, yep. But what sort it's an unexpected form. And if it's unexpected, yeah. it kind of makes sense why you would, why you see Jesus, um, silencing in way like maybe in context particularly where if someone was to go and share it would it would actually run against um the the, the message and the, and the lesson he's trying yeah. to teach them about what sort of messiah he is so what's interesting too is that like when jesus like jesus will tell people that he heals to be quiet at times about who he is yeah. but then when he's in um i forget the name of the town but when he goes over and there's that demoniac the man with yes. the legion and that's in Gentile territory, as you can – even just the average reader can pick that up because there's pigs. Um, yep. And he sends them into the pigs. Jewish people wouldn't have had pigs, um, at least if they were obedient to scripture, that is. Um, <laughs> and so uh, – and I've actually been to that location when I visited Israel. Oh, wow. And so it's it's interesting to like, – I can picture it in my mind. But, but he actually – like he tells the man um, to go and tell. And yep. so yep. uh, we're now you're in Gentile ter territory. I yep. mean, one theory could be, uh, my thought is that it's less likely to be misunderstood. Um, there's less. Yeah, maybe because less they wouldn't these... have this sort of expectations. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And so if if in the like I, there was a lot of diversity within Jew, uh, Jewish thought around the time of Jesus, as we know. But if one of the one of the common ideas was that the Messiah and the nature of God's kingdom was primarily concerned with throwing off a oppressive Roman regime and Jesus was to be broadcasted as the Messiah, 
I mean, even Jesus is killed, we see in the gospel accounts at large, not just Mark in particular, but like we see that he's crucified because he's seen as a threat to the emperor. Like you're not a friend of, of Caesar if you don't, you know, punish this guy who claims to be a competing king. Well, Jesus obviously understands that there's expectations that people have about what a Messiah would be throwing off the government, a revolutionary sort of idea that does not fit with his mission of actually suffering. And so I think what's interesting though, though, as you said, at the transfiguration don't tell until the resurrection it means it's not this isn't permanent this is a yes for a temporary moment and by the end of the book if we understand the book ends in chapter 16 verse 8 nine and following being a later edition most likely then the book sort of ends with a cliffhanger but in which the women are told to go and tell and so now it's actually flipped we've gone from messianic secret to go and tell messianic proclamation yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. yeah, and again, what what you've been saying is how important it is to to kind of have the the whole book in in our in our mind. And I think you know it's it's wonderful as Christians that we can we can read uh, the Bible and we might read a little bit every day and we kind of find a verse that speaks to us and that that's that's good and proper. But as you say, the the riches of understanding a whole book, and that's why it's great that your church is going through the you know the whole book and hopefully you know people will understand the book as a whole. Uh, because you you miss these things and you, and you they just become confusing if you just take them in isolation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're apt to to misunderstand it too. Um, yeah. Let's talk about then the theme of response to Jesus. In your book, you talk about this theme of like revelation, God yeah. revealing Himself, and Jesus coming on the scene, and people respond to Him in different ways. Um, talk to us about that theme as well. Yeah. So that's sort of. Um, Follows on from what we were just talking about, um, you know, understanding, you know, and misunderstanding of Jesus and the need for revelation. Um, and, you know, we see that in the in the parables. I think sometimes we can think of parables, you know, why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, he used kind of language and illustrations that people could understand so that, um, you know, his teaching would be more understandable. But actually, Mark 4 says almost the opposite, right. that, um, you know, the parables are uh, are told to keep, to keep people out. And that actually, the only reason the disciples can understand is because, uh, you know, they are given uh, this, the, you know, the secrets of the kingdom uh, are given uh, to you. So that's what he says in Mark 4. Uh, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may not perceive. I mean, it's striking that, um, you know, Jesus says, I'm telling the parables so that, you know, people you know, don't perceive. And yet the parables, particularly for us as readers of the gospel, you know, the parables help us understand Jesus and his message. And so um, uh, one preacher I've heard very helpfully says that parables are like automatic doors. You know, as you uh, if you if you stand still, an automatic door won't open. But if you move towards an automatic door, it will open and you can enter. And I think, you know, for the disciples who, you know, they, they're fumbling, they don't understand, but they are moving towards Jesus. He opens up the parables. He explains the parables um, uh, to them so that they can understand. And yet, you know, the, the, the disciples are not the paragons of, of understanding, you know, and right. Uh, you know, Jesus has to rebuke the, the, the disciples a number of times uh, for their lack of understanding. And, and um, you know, most uh, kind of strikingly, just after Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, um, 
you know, he misunderstands, he refuses to accept that Jesus has to die and gets the most severe rebuke uh, possible, get behind him, Satan. And so what, what Mark is showing us is you cannot understand Jesus uh, without revelation. You know, there's the revelation of the parables that given to you, but uh, there's also, you know, it's it's beyond our natural understanding. Um, now, the, the language of the Spirit is not, um, not all that common in Mark's gospel, but I think the theology of the Spirit, uh, you know, his theology, I think, is very similar to Paul's theology, that you need... You need the spirit. You need God to open your eyes to understand who you are. Like and you, you mentioned this earlier, like the blind man, a blind man needed his his eyes to be opened. I mean, it's obvious to, to be able to see. But spiritually, that's why Mark's telling us that at that point that you know we need our eyes to be opened uh, to understand and see who Jesus is. Yeah. So there we see um, throughout Mark's gospel this language, this repeated language of seeing and perceiving hearing mm-hmm. understanding like yep. using our sensory organs to yep. uh, as me- metaphorically like il- illustrative of our ability to understand and come to grips with who Jesus is so like in the parable mark 4 the first parable that is it's really a parable on the parables in a sense yep. too it's a parable about why when the gospel is going out why it's not being received and why yep. Jesus is being rejected um, and he's citing, I think it's Isaiah six there. Um, That's right. Yeah. To comparative to Isaiah's ministry, where God actually the pa- the passage that we're very familiar with here, my send me Isaiah says after he sees this wonderful vision of God, but then God actually commissions Isaiah to have a in some ways you might say unfruitful ministry. Like he's successful in the ministry God gave him, but that ministry yep. was actually that people would be hardened. Um, and so even as Jesus goes out, it's going to have the result of some being hardened. But as you said, to those to whom it is given, um, they will, they will, they will gain and they will bear fruit as, as the parable explains. They will gain understanding. Um, but talk to us about the, some of that use of perception language throughout this hearing, the scene, or even just the theme of hard heartedness a little bit more, uh, yeah. still kind of metaphorical, but a little bit more direct, I guess you could say. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I think, as you said, you know, Mark 4, that first parable is very important. But then the one that follows it is, uh, you know, the parable of the lamp, um, you know, put under a basket. And, uh, you know, Jesus says, verse chapter 4, verse 24, uh, pay attention to what you hear with the measure you use it will be measured to you and still more will be added uh, to you. So there is, it, it's interesting that even though, you know, we we can't grasp it as illustrated by the, the disciples that the, the responsibility is still on the, um, you know, the person to, 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 to listen well, to approach Jesus, to, to, to come towards him. And it's only as we do that, that then he, you know, opens our eyes to, uh, to allow us to, to, to hear. Um, so yeah, that, that, as you, you know, you, you pointed out that language, uh, that sensory languages throughout uh, the gospel, um, you know, often, you know, Mark will just adds the idea, you know, they, they saw this happened and it's, it's kind of, it just seems to be an extraneous detail, but I think, uh, you know, it's, it's just mm-hmm. adding this um, by repetition, this, this idea that, um, you know, through Mark, you know, God is calling us to correctly perceive uh, Jesus uh, to correctly hear and perhaps kind of most strikingly to have hearts that are receptive uh, to Jesus. And again, 
kind of near the center of, of the gospel in this first half of correctly perceiving Jesus. You know, we have um, this interaction with the Pharisees who criticize Jesus' disciples for not washing. And then Jesus kind of uh, quotes Isaiah again uh, to, to them, you know, chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? People honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so this idea that, uh, you know, the heart is an organ of um, kind of correct response towards Jesus. And so, you know, that is, that's the problem that, you know, the, the human heart, the reason we can't see or perceive is because our hearts are far from God. So it's not a, it's not a sort of technical you know, technical problem with our eyes or anything like that. It's it's mm-hmm. a spiritual problem that you know originates in in the in the heart. Yeah. So again, what Mark is doing is showing that we need to have our hearts softened. We need to have our eyes open, and you know, to correctly perceive Jesus. And again, this is this sort of going back to something we touched on again is is Mark Mark shows rather than tells. Um, you know, reading reading a gospel is different to reading an epistle. Reading an epistle, you know, Paul or Peter will will just say, you know, uh, you know, you know, unless you know, unless the Spirit opens your eyes, you can't grasp uh, the gospels or one Corinthians one that that sort of idea. Mark shows us the same thing, um, and so it's it's a different. You know, you need to read it differently, and you need to see. Okay, that's what he's showing. That's we've been talking about eyes and ears. Now he's talking about hearts. No, he shows someone who grasps Jesus. You know, it's it's um, it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a very uh, it's it's a wonderfully engaging, rich way of, of Mark kind of showing us uh, the the truth that he's he's uh, presenting. Yeah, and and with that, a lot of the accounts then in Mark are um, illustrative of of this truth. So, like by the end of that first major section of the book, midway through chapter eight. Um, after Jesus is warning them to beware of uh, the the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, who have featured prominently in the last section, and um, this is after like the feeding of the of the five thousand and the four thousand, and when they're out on the mm. sea and things like that, which a lot of that has to do, like a lot of the themes there have to do with faith and understanding and what faith is. Whereas like maybe in Paul, when we think of faith, it's oftentimes contrasted. It's a faith is often the means of salvation, the means of justification contrasted with like trying to earn our salvation. So faith is contrasted with earning an improper uh, approach to works our good Mm -hmm. works as a means of, of right standing with God in Mark. Faith is often contrasted with fear. So you have fear and faith contrasted in these sections or unbelief or a lack of understanding, or uh, later when there's a, after the Mount of Transfiguration incident, you have the man whose boy has an unclean spirit, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief, this idea of doubting, um, which there it's a little, again, and now he's kind of symbolic of a partial understanding, I believe, help my unbelief. But as I was saying, I cut myself off, but as I was saying, at the end of that major first section, um, Jesus says to them when he's warning them about the leaven of the of Herod and the Pharisees, he says, "Do you not, do you uh, not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having mm-hmm. eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember?" Or he says again later in verse twenty-one, "Do you not yet understand?" So the, there's these themes that are very prominent, and again, it all fits then into the overall message of the book about who is Jesus. 
Do yeah. we understand yeah. who Jesus is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk about now the role of miracles in the uh, book of Mark? The miracles function very prominently initially at the very front end of the book. Um, um, yep. but can you talk to us about how they, what are, are these just sort of displays of like, wow, that's an interesting account or, you know, are they serving a larger point within the message of Mark? Yeah, I think, um, I think, it, you know, we can say a couple of things before we can say more things, but, uh, you know, going back to the, the identity of Jesus, you know, the miracles uh, reveal, I think, particularly his divine identity, um, they're not just, as you say, cruel things, um, but they are, uh, they have <clears throat> deep kind of resonances, uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament. Um, you know, Jesus calming the storm. You know, the Psalms talk about, you know, it's God who controls the waves, who controls the storm. So here's Jesus doing a miracle, but he's doing what the Old Testament says only God can do. You know, walking on the water, uh, you know, Job talks about God kind of you know, tramping the waves. So, you know, again, Jesus is doing uh, what, uh, you know, what God can do. Um, you know, control of, of you know, the, the demonic, you know, the, it's control over evil, you know. So he's he's um, he's controlling evil. He's, again, doing what, what God can do. Uh, the, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Again, the, the, the kind of resonances uh, with, Israel in the desert and God providing manna for um, uh, for his people. So the miracles are, again, you know, to, to sound like a broken record, we miss the significance of them if we, uh, you know, don't know our Old Testament because we know our Old Testament. We say, oh, wow, you know, here's Jesus. This is an amazing miracle, but it's doing what, you know, what the Old Testament said only God can do. Mm-hmm. So that's that's one idea. So it's kind of revealing his divine identity. But then I think uh, it, it also shows that, you know, the miracles are required uh, for people in the narrative to, to grasp Jesus' identity. So particularly this healing of blindness, which, um, you know, again, in, in the Old Testament, is uh, that, that is a sign of, you know, when the Messiah comes, you know, he will, he will heal the blind, he'll heal the lame. So, um, you know, again, he's, he's kind of revealing his messianic identity, but within the text of Mark's gospel, he's doing it so that he, so that people can grasp, uh, you know, who he is. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's revealing his identity on, on both levels. Um, it's revealing his, his divine identity by fulfilling the Old Testament, but it's also, he, it's the mechanism by which people can grasp uh, who he is. So, yeah, more than just kind of, uh, you know, we, we, we do, we read them as, as more than just, oh, wow, you know, Jesus doing what no other human being can do. Uh, yeah, that's true, but it's, there's so much more more to it than that. Yeah, they're serving a, a broader purpose. So even after yeah. the feeding uh, of, of the 5,000, um, Jesus is out on the, on the water and he calms the, the storm and he says, do you not remember uh, the loaves, you know, like, did you, did you not learn the lesson that was communicated there? Or when Jesus, uh, the, the story about the, uh, the friends who dropped their, uh, paralyzed friend through the roof so Jesus can yeah. heal him. That's not an, that story is not about how we should be good friends and, you know, try to provide our friends medical care or whatever. Not that we shouldn't, but like, that's not what the point is, yeah. right? And it's not yeah. even, it's not even that Jesus heals the lame man. Um, yeah. but it ultimately is, it serves to illustrate that Jesus, as you as you see, 
that he has authority to forgive sins. And so yeah. the, the miracles, we do see them functioning uh, to teach these bigger lessons. There's an account, I can't remember where it is, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, where there's a town, I believe, where Jesus goes to and he does not do miracles because of their unbelief. Um, can you remind me where that is and if, if yeah. you have thoughts on what, are we supposed to take that as kind of like Jesus is incapacitated, be, his power is like thwarted because of their unbelief or like somehow his ability to heal, kind of like maybe like word faith movement, like if we don't believe enough, Jesus can't actually heal us and that's why we have sicknesses is because we don't really believe enough or something like that. Is that what that passage is teaching? Yeah, so that's in Mark 6 uh, when uh, Jesus went to his hometown and, you know, the people are, uh, you know, they hear him teach and they sort of take offense because, you know, it's, you know, we, we know this guy, is you know, we, we know who his, you know, his father is, uh, we know his mother is, you know, his brothers and they take offense at him and, um, yeah, they, they, you know, Jesus says that famous uh, statement, uh, chapter six, verse uh, four, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And then, as you say, it is quite striking. He could do no mighty work there. Uh, except Mark continues, uh, you know, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Uh, you know, so <laughs> e e even there, you know, okay, that, that's, you know, you know, anyone who's doing that is still incredibly impressive. And <laughs> yeah. I think, I think the reason is because of the function of the miracles is, is to reveal. Right. But if they're right. not, you know, if they've rejected him, he's not going to do any miracles because the point of the miracles is not to be kind of impressive. Right. Uh, it's to reveal who he is. Nevertheless, you know, he is compassionate. And so he does do those healings and he does heal people because he is, uh, he is compassionate. And so many of the miracles that they're, they're not, they're not kind of, it's not David Copperfield making things disappear. <laughs> yeah. it, it is, it, it you know, it, it's helping people. And so he, he does, you know, he does do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move uh, a little bit now to thinking about salvation and the cross yep. in Mark's gospel. Yep. So yep. some might say that Mark doesn't have a theology of atonement, um, that there isn't this uh, treatment of salvation in Mark. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What would you say is Mark's understanding of cross and salvation? Yeah, I think, again, um, sometimes we, we read Mark and expect Mark to be, um, you know, a, a Pauline epistle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, unless kind of Mark explicitly states something, well, then he mustn't uh, hold to it. Uh, or unless he has sort of Jesus explicitly states something, he mustn't hold to it. But again, Mark is giving us a narrative. And uh, Mark, uh, one of the things I, I argue in the book is I, I think um, Mark is very much um, in conversation with Paul. And so... Uh, you know, there are all these connections. Traditionally, you know, Mark is connected to Peter, and I think that's also true, but I think Mark is connected to Paul. And so I think a lot of Paul's theological themes are there in Mark. Mm -hmm. It's just Mark shows rather than tells. Yeah. And, and we so, know they're connected from the book of Acts and Paul's epistles. Yeah. Like we know, we see Mark showing up with uh, with Luke, with, with Paul. Yeah. Um, so, so the, the, you're not, this isn't totally speculative in that sense either. No, no, not at all. Not at all. And, you know, if you look at the theological theme, so we've been talking about revelation, um, and that's obviously that's in each of the gospels, but you can, you can sort of see some really strong parallels between Paul and, and Mark 
in, in the, their emphases. Um, and um, yeah, so all that to say is I, I think, you know, we sort of say, okay, well, Paul, you know, Paul gives us the explicit statements and, and Mark sort of shows us, you know, shows us, um, shows us it in a, in a complementary way. And so, you know, very simply, you know, you have um, uh, Barabbas, um, you know, being in a sense that, you know, Jesus being substituted for, for Barabbas, um, right. you know, the people, Pilate offers uh, someone to be um, uh, to be released and sort of says, do you want me to release Jesus? And they say, no, crucify him. So he releases Barabbas in, in, instead. And, and some people sort of say, oh, but, you know, you know, Mark doesn't specify this or that. But I think just if you read that and you, you know, you understand the basics of the gospel. Yeah, this is what Mark is showing. And here's a guilty man who went free. Jesus died in his place. You know, that, that to, to me is, you know, substitution. Yes, if you push it too far, you know, the, the, it breaks down. But I think very simply. And then, you know, there are there are the kind of um, <clears throat> Mark does give us explicit statements from uh, Jesus. Uh, most famously, um, chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is, you know, Jesus articulating why he came is to give his life as a ransom uh, for many and maybe even take that stronger, you know, in the place of many. Um, so there's there's the narrative, there's the explicit statements of, of Jesus, and then there are the Old Testament allusions again, particularly in the narrative leading up to the cross. Uh, Mark gives us uh, Old Testament allusions when Jesus dies, um, you know, that the, uh, you know, there's darkness and again, um, you know that that's symbolic in the uh, in the Old Testament of, of you know, God's judgment falling. So uh, you know you, you can you could sort of say you could reject each of these things these allusions maybe, but you know when when you read it in light of um, the narrative, in light of Jesus' statements, and in light of you know the rest of the New Testament, I think Mark is very clearly in line with with Paul and Peter and others presenting a, a theology of atonement. Yeah. yeah. You have statements which, uh, like Jesus's, um, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, yeah. of course, yeah. requires some uh, careful yeah. thinking. Um, yeah. But then you also have the temple being torn, and there's questions yeah. about is that signifying judgment on the temple system or signifying access to the Father yeah. or potentially both. Um, but yeah. you have, I think, even... To, to to neglect that there is a atonement theology, it's it's a little bit mind boggling to me. Is when at least you consider, if nothing else, right before the cross, Jesus is praying uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, "Take yep. this cup from me, this cup, yes. this cup of staggering um, of yep. God's judgment." I believe, like yep. alluding to Isaiah, and then before that, yep. even going back just a little bit further, you have Jesus interprets his own death in in the terms of the Passover meal. Yep. Um, yep, yep. And so identifying his his body and blood, these uh, re- referring to his death that will his body and blood given over for them um, as as essentially like this is going to provide atonement in the same way that the God's wrath passed over the people in the Passover lamb. That's what I'm doing. What's that? What I'm about to do here for you as well. And so you do have these references again as you said the emphasis is more on showing than just explicitly you know it's not like a theological treatise like you find in paul but there are 
these statements along the way that an attentive reader would pick up on and understand then what Jesus is doing in his death. He's already told us he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, he's already told us what his death means in the Lord's Supper, mm. etc. Yeah. And again, I think it goes back to, um, you know, what we said earlier about um, chapter four, verse 24, you know, to the measure you use it, we measure to you, you know, so there's a sense in which if you approach Mark's gospel with an understanding, yeah, this is someone who's, you know, writing deeply in the context of you know, the Old Testament, you know, you know, in, in, in an apostolic kind of context, I'm going to read it generously and I'm going to look for connections to to the Old Testament. I'm going to look to connections that would be the same as, you know, what we see in Paul and Peter. I'm going to read generously. Then, as you say, you, you notice all these connections and, and you get a deeper understanding of the significance of, of Jesus' death. Yeah, yeah, because we assume that people reading this, you know, uh, most likely Mark is not the first Christian writing produced in terms no. of what with the New Testament. Um, and so mm-hmm. they would have been, and there's apostolic preaching and their, their yep. elders in their churches are preaching. So, I mean, like these are people who know the gospel who are reading yep. this. And yep. so they're, they're bringing all of that. There's presuppositions and Correct. pre-knowledge that's being brought into yeah. their reading of Mark. And so that's fair yeah. game as we interpret Mark. That's like yeah. Mark would have that in mind that they would know certain yeah. things. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, it's, you know, because we use Mark, we often use it evangelistically, which is great and appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but as Christians, you know, we, we're the original readers in the sense, you know, he's writing to people with an understanding of the gospel, who heard preaching, you know, know the basic story, and he's filling it out for us. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing, too, outside of just cross themes about cross and atonement, Mark does also, uh, or Jesus in the gospel of Mark, does also mention things like the gospel and things like eternal life and salvation. Um, So when he's interacting with the rich young ruler who asks him, the rich young ruler asks Jesus how he would uh, inherit eternal life, or he speaks of treasure in heaven, um, where he talks about entering the kingdom of God like little children right before that. Um, He also, when he's talking about the call of discipleship, um, he says, let me turn there, um, for whoever would save his life, that is, try to preserve this mm-hmm. life, will lose it. But whoever loses this life, giving it up for the sake of the gospel, that is, will save it. There's salvation language. Um, for what does it gain? Uh, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Um, and so there's this idea of saving one's soul. Mm-hmm. Um, the discipleship is 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 the pathway of those whose souls are saved. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is also kind of brings up the, maybe the next theme. Uh, so in other words, Mark does have, even if it's not this pronounced theology of salvation, yeah. like I, I think of comparing Mark, if you read Mark and then you read the Gospel of John, yes. John is yeah. very focused. His under, his yeah. view of John's use of faith or believe yeah. is more the means of how we're saved. And he says yeah. his point that he says at the end of the book is that you would believe and have eternal life. And so for John, the, 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 John is very much what we might consider evangelistic in that sense. Yeah. Even if he's yeah. still writing yeah. to believers, he's preaching yeah. a gospel uh, of salvation through faith, eternal life through faith. Um, whereas Mark, interestingly, even though there is, like we just showed, there is, there is, it's not like Mark doesn't have a theology of salvation or a theology of the cross. For Mark, faith has more to do with understanding who Jesus is and the call to the believer is less believing in Jesus to be saved yep. and more 
following Jesus. So the cross in Mark, whereas in other places in the New Testament, the cross is primarily, and none of these are incompatible or competing yep. with each yep. other. They they merge. Um, like Peter is a great example of this, and is in his first epistle, uh, he talks about the the death of Christ as the means by which we are brought back to God. And he also then talks about the death of Christ as a pattern for our own lives. Similarly, Mark, you know, there is an atonement theology, but the over the overwhelming emphasis seems to be on the cross as actually a model for our own discipleship. Mm-hmm. And so if anything, uh, the portrait of Jesus is presented uh, in Mark less about the means of salvation, but more assuming you are one of those people who is saved, what it looks like to actually follow in his footsteps. Um, mm. So with that, do you mind maybe helping us think about the theme of discipleship sure. in Mark? Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, if if the first half of the gospel is about Jesus' identity, you know, the second half is following Jesus in the way of the cross. So it's it's discipleship, and and you see that in the <clears throat> the interaction with Peter at the midpoint. You know, yeah. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then immediately misunderstands that Jesus has to die, and you know. Pe- Jesus rebukes him and then says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so the second half of the gospel is, you know, teaching about the cross, teaching about discipleship as Jesus heads for the cross. So it's showing us uh, what it means uh, to be a disciple. And that is following Jesus by the way of the cross. And what's interesting is that that kind of, passion prediction is repeated a number of times and in between those repetitions is kind of teaching on what it means to be a disciple what it means to carry your cross and you know we, we can sometimes sort of uh have this idea that you know that that is a that's a radical you know all out living for jesus which it is but within this section he teaches on things like um you know, who, who is the greatest? Uh, you know, it's being the servant of all. So it's not thinking of yourself more highly than you are, but serving others. Uh, it is, uh, you know, not opposing, you know, other godly Christians who are doing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, the, the Lord's work, which, you know, he rebukes the disciples for doing. Uh, he also, in this section on, you know, following Jesus by the way of the cross, he talks about divorce and marriage. Right, and sort of yeah. makes this kind of high calling about, um, you know, not not divorcing, not getting divorced. And so what does it mean to be a radical disciple carrying a cross, following Jesus? Well, it means being faithful to your family. So, yes, it, it's putting sin to death. Yes, it is serving others above yourself. But it's also going to look more ordinary in, you know, in, in your marriage. And I, that, that's one of the things that I find really striking was this. And again, it, it goes back to the point that you've been making really helpfully is that, you know, we, we need to read the gospel as a whole. The teaching on marriage is in this section on discipleship. So, you know, marriage and discipleship are not uh, incompatible. Being faithful in your marriage is being a radical cross-carrying disciple of Jesus. I, I, you know, I, I think that's, um, that's, that's really interesting. The other, the other thing that's interesting is that language of discipleship and following is once you know, once you get out of the Gospels, that language is not used in the rest of the New Testament. A couple of times in Acts, but the language of discipleship is not used. And w- what I think then we, we have to sort of say is a, a lot of what the epistles talk about in terms of 
how to live the Christian life. That that is their application of Jesus' teaching about uh, discipleship. So again, th- th- this is kind of something I'm, I'm sort of becoming more convinced of that we need to read not just the New Testament, you know, in conversation with the Old Testament, but I think it's important to read different parts of the New Testament as uh, interpreting each other, helping us understand. So, you know, what what does it look, if you want to know more what it looks like to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, well, the epistles help us to, to understand that. Yeah. 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 So discipleship modeled after the cross and mark in lar- largely is serving to provide the shape of our own discipleship. Yep. Um, which yep. is radical, but also mundane too, uh, pretty yes. ordinary. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Can you talk to us about the role of the temple in the book of Mark? Uh, temple is a huge theme. So the very opening part of Mark uh, references Malachi, where the yep. Lord is coming to his temple. And then yep. the first, the first, uh, if we if we break Mark up into three sections, the first two sections, Jesus is not yet going to Jerusalem. He doesn't arrive in Jerusalem. Yep. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Finally, when he gets there, in chapter eleven, he arrives in the temple. He cleanses the temple. Eventually, he predicts the destruction of the temple yep. in chapter thirteen. Yep. And then at the cross, the veil of the temple is torn. So, temple functions very prominently uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Why is that? Why does that matter? What's significant about where temple is fitting into Mark's story? Yeah, I think a couple of reasons. Um, again, you know, if Jesus is, uh, you know, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, there's a sense in which he's the fulfillment of everything that the temple kind of symbolizes um, in terms of, you know, our relationship to God. And, and it, you know, as faithful Jews would have rightly seen the temple as the, you know, the center of God's uh, presence. Well, that's now switched to 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 Jesus. But there's also this idea that um, you know Israel has largely rejected uh, God, has largely rejected the Messiah, and so um, you know Jesus, you know, as the Son of God, is fulfilling the role that you know Israel had in the Old Testament. And so there's a sense in which again God is doing something new. And I mean, this opens up. The, you know, massive, massive questions about the connections between kind of Israel, the continuity. Um, but I think very simply we can say that um, there there is judgment being enacted on uh, on Israel, and that is, you know, you know, graphically symbolized in the temple, both in the prediction of Mark thirteen, but also the you know in the tearing of the temple mm-hmm. in in Mark fifteen at Jesus' death. And Jesus yeah. cleansing the temple too, and the the fig tree, yeah. uh, the fig tree narrative of the of the cursing of the fig tree representing the temple. So yeah, there is absolutely. a lot of this, like coming. And in Malachi, God is coming in judgment. That the yep. passage yep. that he that the book opens with, um, yep. Jesus is coming, is Yahweh's coming, and to bring yep. to purge the temple. Judgment. And so there yep. is there is this judgment on the temple, on the temple system, or even the parable when Jesus is in the temple and he's interacting with all these religious leaders who sort of keep coming at him one after the other. He tells about the parable of the tenants um, where um, I'm not sure if temple is specifically referenced, but sort of the religious leaders are, are uh, opposed the one that the ones that God sends, and so there's this there's this battle between the religious leaders and Jesus, and the religious leaders yeah. maybe representing the temple system. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And you know the the um, yeah the parable of the tenants in the vineyard, and then uh, at the end, um, you know he 
uh, he will give the vineyard to others. And that that's, you know, you know, what is what does that mean? But you know, within within Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus gather uh, in a sense a new Israel to himself with the twelve disciples. You know, mm-hmm. the, but the twelve disciples are all Jewish, so there there is continuity, you know, it's it's a remnant, um, you know, and it's it's not a sort of stopping one thing and starting another thing. And there's continuity. He's he's gathering a new Israel to himself, you know, to which the Gentiles will be uh, will be included. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that seems to be going on as well. So a, a judgment on the old system, and particularly those who represented it as the leaders who yep. had rejected yeah. Jesus, and an emergence yeah. of something new out of it, a remnant, not a replacement, as sometimes people. We'll say, but this idea of there is a development occurring. We see the apostles, then the twelve, symbolizing the twelve tribes. Of course, there's a, yeah. we see that eventually developing into the church in which even Gentiles are included. Yeah, yeah. Um, this yeah, also absolutely. sort of dovetails with other. This we're kind of brushing on Jew Gentile relationship as well. And the last yeah. thing I wanted to ask you about then was uh, the theme in Mark's gospel about Jesus's relationship to the law and traditions. So here yeah, we have yeah. the Mosaic law, but also then sometimes just Jewish traditions that aren't actually Mosaic law, but maybe things the religious leaders practiced and were kind of functionally treated as, as authoritative, as, as, as he says, you're treating them as doc, you're treating as doctrines, yeah. the commandments of men. So what yeah. role do those play uh, in the gospel of Mark? Yeah. So the relationship to the law is really interesting. So early on, um, you know, Jesus heals, um, uh he heals people um but he will um yeah it's, it's the leper at the end of uh chapter one you know he heals the leper and then uh sends him to uh, the priest and offer you know f- for your cleansing what moses commanded so there's a sense in which you know jesus uh you know upholds uh the law um you know he's um uh, saying that that is right that you uh you know you make that offering um but then, uh, you know, as, as we go on in the gospel, particularly, as you say, the kind of traditions of man, we get to chapter seven, you know, they're, they're washing themselves. And uh, Jesus says, well, that's, um, you know, that, that is insisting on that. You're, you're insisting on something that it's just, it's just your own human traditions, uh, even as your heart is far from God. So he rejects those kind of, uh, traditions. But as he goes on, on um you know he he uh seems to to deal with the kind of the food laws and you know in this context of washing and eating um you know he teaches that you know it's not what goes into your uh, into your mouth that makes you unclean it's it's you know what comes out of your heart that uh, uh makes you unclean and uh in in doing that you know mark uh makes the comment uh you know thus he declared all foods clean so again, we're, we're sort of seeing the kind of continuity but fulfillment uh, in Mark's gospel that we see elsewhere in the New Testament, that the relationship with the law is not just sort of uh, abrogating it, uh, it's, it's bringing it to its fulfillment. Um, what he does abrogate, what he does reject, as you said, is the, the kind of uh, human uh, interpretations of the law, that the Pharisees were, were kind of insisting you know this is our interpretation of the law that this this means that you need to do xyz he says no that's 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 additional that's just that's that's those are traditions uh but even the law itself undergoes a change or a fulfillment with uh, with the coming of jesus yeah 
Well, thanks uh, so much for coming on today. Um, it's been it's been so much fun talking to you about these things. Uh, it gets me excited about going through Mark as a church uh, for this year. Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's a great gospel. I'm sure I'm sure your church and you will have a you know have a great time working through it. Um, yeah, it's a it's a wonderful gospel, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, you'll all grow in your you know understanding you know proper perception of of jesus and who he is and what it means to follow him yeah thanks thanks so much for coming on thank you thanks for having me